Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read these verses out loud. O Lord, Thou art my God. I will exalt Thee. I will give thanks to Thy name, for Thou hast worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For Thou hast made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore a strong people will glorify Thee. Cities of ruthless nations will revere Thee. For Thou hast been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in a drought, thou dost subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. One of the great motives for world evangelization that has carried us and continues to sustain and energize us here at Bethlehem is hope. And what we mean by hope when we say that is not a kind of finger crossing, oh, I hope it works or that it's useful for people to go overseas, but rather a tremendous biblically based confidence that God's cause in the world will triumph. That's what we mean by hope. And therefore, the confidence that what we're engaged in will triumph, will succeed, carries us. It, it fills us with the sense that nobody goes in vain. Nobody sins in vain. Nobody prays in vain. No child puts a penny in in vain. Nobody lights a little candle and shines it anywhere in vain. No sermon is preached in Missions fest in vain because everything under God's wonderful sovereignty is moving toward this triumph. And what we have in these few verses that Greg read is a picture of that triumph. Let me just say a word about how, how prophets speak in the Old Testament. Again and again, what you read when you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos is uh, future photography, you'd call it. That is... God grants pictures of the future to prophetic eyes. And sometimes it's frustrating for us because, you know, if, if you're real curious and somebody shows you a picture of, of Big Ben in, uh, like I saw these guys sitting on the parliament or something in London yesterday with Big Ben in the background, they were protesting something. And I had questions about the rest of the roof outline and how they got there. And how close was Big Ben? It looked like it was right on top of them. And was it across the... And, and there were no answers coming out of the photograph. And, and there aren't a lot of answers coming out of prophetic photographs. You know, you might ask, well, well how did this fit together with that? And how did this? And, and the prophets would say, that's what I got. <laughs> that's what I got. And, and the picture is glorious. I mean, it's magnificent. It shows triumph. It shows a lot that's... Enough to sustain us and carry us. So I, I want you to be able to profit from pictures of the future given by prophetic insight. Don't 
trouble yourself that you can't always put all the pieces together as to how it gets from here to there or how that picture relates exactly to this picture because they're all true pictures and you don't need to say, oh, I can't figure it all out and therefore it's not going to help me. Well, it, it helps me and I sure hope it helps you. Let me just um, focus for a minute on, on Isaiah's picture. But before I do that, let me tell you how we're going to do this this morning. A few minutes on the picture. They're going to jump to the New Testament to a particular city of ruthless nations that comes under the sway of sovereign grace. And then we're going to jump to Bethlehem and our particular situation here as we move toward the end of the year and leave Missions Week and into the next eight Sundays. So first, let's look at the picture here. Start with verse one in Isaiah 25. O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will give thanks to thy name. Why? It starts reasons. For thou hast worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Now, one of the things about this big picture that Isaiah sees is that it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And what we see in this verse is some of this backward glance of eternity past The wonders that God works, Isaiah says, were planned long ago. Now, why does he say that? In fact, Isaiah really likes this idea. If you read Isaiah straight through and just mark all the places where he refers to the fact that what God is doing or will do, he planned to do. There's a lot of them. Why? Why doesn't he just say he did it? It's wonderful. Wow. Why does he say, and by the way, long time ago, he planned to do it. And I think the reason he points that out so many times, like read in your spare time today, Isaiah 46, like verses 9 and 10 and 11, is because it heightens, I think it heightens the sense of God's mastery over the world. I thought thought of a football game. It's uh, three seconds left, balls on your own, 45 and uh, you need a field goal, about a 52-yarder. That has been done. And uh, so you send in Ravez and uh, you say, win it. And uh, the ball is snapped and he does it. Maybe even hits the crossbar and bounces over to make it really dramatic. And everybody's wild. But nobody planned to win the game that way. Nobody planned to win. Nobody planned to be down by two with uh, three seconds to go. You win it, and there's a lot of excitement. You say, there's a wonder. There's a wonder. Now, what God adds to his victories, and he wins some like that. He wins some battles in the last three seconds with a bow drawn on a venture. The difference is he planned it that way. God planned it that way to get the crowds up. And Isaiah likes that idea. He likes to draw attention to the fact when God's wonders happen in the world, they don't often happen the way we would plan them. God planned it. And so the, the, the thing that he heightens here is that God's doing wonders in the world and he planned them long ago. So the picture is big backwards. Now, the picture is also even more magnificently big forwards. Now, this Greg didn't read. I didn't ask him to. But I want to jump ahead to verses 6 to 8 and have you read with me or look at me a passage of Scripture that the poet Robert Burns, remember that old 
Scottish poet who, who I think he was the one who said, oh, that God, the gift would give us to see ourselves as others see us, only he said it with a brogue. He said, I cannot read this passage without tears. Verses 6 to 8, especially he was referring to verse 8. It's, it's one of the most beautiful, hope-filled words that come out of the Old Testament. It's hard to believe you're reading the Old Testament, in fact, when you read these words. I'll read them with you, verses 6 to 8. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples. Now, just stop there and let that sink in. God is going to prepare at some future date a banquet on the hills of Zion, not just for Israel, but for all the peoples. All the peoples are coming in. This is not universalism, because some of the peoples up till that great time are going to be rebelling and die and go to hell. But the peoples are coming. Representatives from all the peoples are coming and they're going to be at this banquet on the mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined and aged wine. And on this mountain, here's what else is going to happen besides a banquet. On this mountain, God is going to swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all the nations. Now, what's that? A veil probably represents here uh, a veil of mourning, a veil of sorrow. When you, when, when you put a veil on, uh, there is a, tra- a tragedy that's happened. It's a dark veil and uh, some pain and some crying. And now in verse 8, he tells us why what the veil was and why it's going to be lifted. He will swallow up death. This is the one that Burns couldn't read without tears. He will swallow up death for all time. There's eternity future. For all time. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It's coming. It's coming. The day is coming in this picture that God planned long ago that for all time, peoples are coming in from all the earth, all those flags. They're coming in, every sort of shape, face, color, design, every kind of language. It's coming in. A banquet table is going to be spread by the Lord God Almighty. He will serve them, according to Luke 12. Believe that. You can that God Almighty in his son Jesus would have put a towel around himself and walk from table to table and serve sinners justified by his blood. Picture that. Go over and read that in Luke 12. I think it's like 37 following. And then he's going to take this veil, which has been worn by humanity for thousands of years of agony and affliction and suffering and every manner of crying and tears and pain. He's going to lift it, throw it away. And then the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And death will be no more forever and ever and ever. And all the opposition that he's received over the ages will be gone. And nobody will worship Bel or Nebo or Moloch or Buddha or Allah or any kind of utopian social agenda or any capitalistic possibility or any kind of new age deity or any kind of animistic spirit. It'll all be gone and there will be one God 
and his son, the lamb, standing forth in a great banquet. And that's the way we're going to celebrate forever and ever and ever. It is a great picture. You don't need to have all the questions answered about how we're going to get there in order to say, I want to be there. Mm, I want to be there. How can I be included? That's the setting for verse 3, where we got our Mission Fest 94 theme. Therefore, a strong people will glorify thee. Cities of ruthless nations will revere thee. Now, that's just another statement of what we saw in verse 6. All the nations are going to be at this banquet, and uh, whole cities of them are coming. Cities of nations. Now, that's important. It was important for the Apostle Paul. And it is important for us today. Remember Ray Bakke last week drawing our attention to the urban scene and saying the nations are coming to the cities. And if you want to minister strategically, consider the cities. It's really crucial that we recognize this. And I want us to jump to the New Testament city which we'll take just as a sample example of how the grace of God moves into a city, begins to triumph, and what effect it has on the city. And the city I want us to, to choose is uh, Philippi. Paul, when he read the Old Testament and when he prayed, was taught a mission strategy, I believe by the Lord, that he should plant churches in cities. And so that's all he did. He just planted churches in cities. We don't know of anything else he did besides plant and nurture churches in cities. Now, if you take Philippi as an example here, how did that come about? Well, he's in Turkey. It's not called Turkey back then. It, he's in Troas on the Aegean Sea. It's about 100 miles from Troas up to Neapolis. you got to stop at Samothrace if you take a boat. Usually that's the way they did it. What was his strategy? Well, he's praying one night. That's the way Paul did it. He prayed. And a vision happens. And a man standing in Macedonia, across the way there, says, come over into Macedonia and help us. He consults with his team and they conclude this is from the Lord and he plans to go. Now, let me read you how Luke, the writer of Acts, describes this strategy he hits upon in verse uh, in chapter 16. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. That's a little island on the way there. And the following day to Neapolis. Now, Neapolis is the city on the coast of Macedonia, northern Greece there. And interestingly, he, as far as we know, doesn't do anything in Neapolis. Why? Why does he just kind of walk through Neapolis? A lot of lost people. They're all lost in Neapolis. And he walks through. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading. Here's, here's Luke's explanation, I think which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And then a whole chapter in the book of Acts is devoted to what happened in that city. So there's the strategy. A city of ruthless nations. Paul looks at it and he says, that's the city where we most strategically could bring ruthless nations to revere the Lord. Let's go. Now, let me just say a word about Philippi, because I just did a little study on Philippi to give you a flavor of the kind of city he's walking into and how it might relate today to our 
cities and how it relates to ruthless nations. Uh, Philippi is on the Ignatian Way. You heard of that? Remember that from way back in Rome World Civilization class? It's on the Ignatian Way, which, which is the road you've got to take if you want to go from the Aegean Sea over up to northern Italy and down to Rome on the land. And so it's an incredibly cosmopolitan city. People walking through there of all different shapes, sizes, colors, languages. It is politically and geographically strategic. There's an, um, an imperial cult there where people reverence and revere the deity of the Caesar. In fact, there's all kinds of cults there. The ones that I found listed in the things that I read were there were, there were Greek gods that had the Roman names Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, Mars. There was this famous goddess, goddess Artemis. Uh, and her cult, under the name in Philippi, evidently Bendis. And then there were Egyptian gods, at least two, Isis and Serapis. There was a Phrygian god, uh, Sibylle. In other words, this place was crawling with deities and each having its cult and each cult having its unique and particular kind of, of worship. So it was full of nations and it was full of religions and it was a zoo of cultic activity. Now, let me put in a parenthesis here that's kind of remotely connected to what I'm, my thread of thought here. We Christians, we evangelicals who've been around for a while and have a country that's, what, 300 or so years old, and that was founded by fathers who were Puritans, by and large, and Christians, and whose society has been incredibly permeated by Judeo-Christian values, and that is still the case. As we see all of that crumbling around us, we, we tend to panic and we tend to think, oh, my God, America is going to the devil. What will the church do? Well, we'll do what Paul did. We'll go to Philippi. There wasn't any Christian in Philippi. Do you ever think of that? Zero. None. No Judeo-Christian values. Paganism. Through and through. Competing horrible kinds of cults, all kinds of sexual mess. And Paul says, there it is. Let's go. Let's be the church here. Let's create the church here. Well, why don't, what are we panicking about? I mean, if America becomes a Philippi, we do what Paul did, right? We be the church. Let's, let's not have our faith in kingdom values so woven together with Americanism that if that flag burns, we burn. We don't burn. We go to heaven. And we're trying to take as many people with us as we can. We are kingdom people and Americans Lord. Which is why, by the way, I don't want to offend anybody here, but it's a controversial issue. Why the flag is in the commons usually and up here on holidays and special days. I hope that's okay. It's not okay with some. I love you and I respect your views. But that's a decision the elders made a long time ago. That's just a little piece of the reason that we're, we're Christians here first. We're not Americans first. And the commons is kind of where we're all on the same level. And this sanctuary is where God speaks. And so it's out there. That's the reason. And so we, we continue to talk about that. If God wants to change our minds, that's fine too. But that's the reason. Philippi was a, uh, a city of ruthless nations. And here comes Paul. And here comes God. And here comes grace. And what's the effect? Now, I want you to look up a text with me. Because this is our transition to Bethlehem and bringing us toward the end here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
I wrote about this in the star. Some of you may have gotten yesterday. We got our star yesterday and uh, some of you will get them. Uh, we're talking about the church star here, not the St. Paul. And I wrote what I'm going to say now pretty much in the star because I wanted it to hit you twice because it's so important to me right now, right now in our life together. Second Corinthians eight, one and two is a description of what happens when sovereign grace penetrates a city of ruthless nations. Let me tell you why I chose Philippi, why I chose this text, why I'm designing this sermon the way I am. Two weeks ago, I was praying not about the sermon. I was praying about our finances. I lingered in the presence of the Lord probably two hours one morning, just praying, seeking the Lord, knowing we're hurting at Bethlehem right now as we come toward the end of the year. And, and mainly I was asking, is there a word for me that would enable me to encourage the people and would increase our faith that you would act here in a decisive way for us at the end of the year? And uh, I really believe, I really believe these two verses were God's word to me and are to you because of the remarkable parallel between this verse and where we are. Two or three things here that linked up with uh, us, with, with Philippi. Now, the reason I say Philippi is because this is a description of what happened in Macedonia. Macedonia, are, uh, those are the churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So when it says Macedonia here, think Philippi. That great church, Paul wrote one of his letters to Philippi, and he said in chapter 4, they were the church that more than any other church supported him in his mission financially. God really moved in Philippi. We know from archaeology that the church was there in 2nd century and the 4th century. We know that there were two huge basilicas discovered uh, that existed in the 5th and 6th or 5th or 6th century. So we know that the gospel landed, it was planted, it stayed, it bore fruit for 6 centuries at least. And I'm sure longer than that. Drawing nations in that crucial city to the Lord. Now... When Paul wants to describe to the Corinthians what happened in Philippi, when grace landed, he talks about money. Here's what it says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. So he's describing grace here now. What happens when grace enters a city of ruthless nations? We want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. That in a great ordeal of affliction, note that, their abundance of joy, note that, and their deep poverty, note that, overflowed in a wealth of liberality, note that. Now, when I read that, what I saw was a crazy kind of mathematics, which goes like this, great ordeal of affliction, plus deep poverty, plus abundance of joy, equals wealth of liberality. See that? I, you don't even have to do any fancy homiletical, exegetical footwork to see that. Let me just read it again. In a great ordeal of affliction, there's add-in number one, their abundance of joy, there's number two, and their deep poverty, there's number three, and here's the sum of the addition, overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Affliction plus poverty plus joy equals generosity. Weird, weird mathematics. When that grace moved into that city, it didn't take away the affliction. It caused the affliction. 
It didn't take away the poverty. There goes health, wealth, and prosperity. Poof, out the window. But it added joy, incredible joy, a Isaiah 25 kind of joy. And when joy got stirred into great affliction and deep poverty, money flowing everywhere towards mission. Isn't that weird? That's weird math. It's called grace. It's called grace. I will show to you the grace of God landing in the city of ruthless nations and what effect it has. Now, the key question here as we move toward the end of the year is, we got the affliction, all right? We've got the affliction. That's why it hit me so hard. We've been under affliction. We're in affliction. We've taken some hits as a church. We know affliction. Two, uh, there's some poverty. Now, here, I have to be careful because I know we're rich. I know we're rich. By world standards, anybody that's got clothes, food, and a house is rich, 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 rich. However... What hit me when I read it was, there's a lot of people who aren't giving at Bethlehem anymore. They quit. They're gone. They left. And uh, whammo, we're giving $20,000 a week instead of $30,000 a week, which we need. More now. So there's poverty. I think, hmm. So we got affliction, we got poverty. How can those two go together to make $400,000, which is what we need between now and the end of the year? Or we needed it two weeks ago. It's less now. And he said, joy, stir in the joy. Affliction plus poverty plus abundant joy equals unbelievable generosity. So the the gospel wild card is, will the joy come? Will the joy land? Will Isaiah 25 do it? Plus all the other gospel that we'll hear, that you read, that you know, will it do it? So I asked the staff, here's, here's the answer of the staff. I went to the staff two weeks ago with this on my heart, and I said, uh, we need $400,000 by the end of the year. Another $400,000. we are talking another, not the whole year. Our budget is $1.4 million. We need another $400,000, and uh, there's only 500 of us left. That is, giving units, take away the kids, take away the teenagers, and take away the departures. you got about 550 or 500 giving units. That's singles or families who still give, according to Paul Johnson. Divide 500 into 400,000, what do you get? 800 bucks. $800 average from every giving unit that's left. Not counting the kids. And not counting outside giving, which is always God's incredible wild card at the end of the year. I thought, that, we can do that. We can do that. So I went to the staff and I said, I want to know what you can do, what you're willing to do. Where's the joy? What's God doing in your heart? Anonymously, fill out one of these little sheets. I made these sheets up. I said, take it home, pray with your spouse if you're married, and come back. Anonymously write to me what, what you will give, God helping you, between now and the end of the year. And uh, the average... Of 17 staff is $1,069, which means this staff is committed joyfully 133% to this church and to its mission. I did the same thing with the elders. I gave it to all the elders. I said, go home, pray. Seven of them, not counting us four elders who are on the staff, so that would be 11 elders total, but take, off, take away the four, the seven elders pledged, and there's $1,021. Now, I mention these figures anonymously for them so that you will know that the staff are with you in this ministry, in this mission. 
and that you don't have to feel like, well, if I were to stretch, am I alone in stretching? You're not alone. And I know that $800 is cataclysmic figure for some of you because $800 between now and the end of the year is equal to a tithe on a, on a uh, annual salary of about 48000 bucks. Most of our people do not make $48,000. Uh, the staff commitment of $1,069 is over a gift that would be equal to a tithe on $60,000 a year. Nobody on the staff makes $60,000 a year, period. So you know the staff is stretching way beyond their tithe in order to say to you, we love this church and we love the mission that it exists for. Same with the elders. Um, every little gift that a child gives and every dollar that you give, if you're unemployed and can't come close to $800, will be taken by God, I believe, like the loaves and the fish. He'll say, that's worth more than what John Piper gave. That's worth more than what John Piper gave because you gave out of your bankruptcy. And he'll take it like the loaves and the fishes, and he will multiply it way beyond anything you could have dreamed. So the key, according to the math of Second Corinthians, is joy. Great affliction plus deep poverty plus abundant joy equals great generosity. And I just want to leave you with this picture again now, because I have no way to make you happy except to hold up to you God and his future for you. And the picture he gives this morning, and he's going to give a lot of other pictures between now and the end of the year, the picture he gives for you is he's going to spread a banquet someday for all the peoples. He's going to lift the veil someday of all the sorrow and all the crying and all the pain and all the tears, whatever the cause is in your life. And he's going to take away the last enemy death and we will live forever and ever and ever in a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth. Which means that no sermon is going to be preached in vain and no missionary is going to go in vain. And nobody's going to send in vain and no dollar will be given in vain and no light will be lit in vain. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, my prayer right now as we close is that you will light the candle of joy. Lord, light the candle of joy because that's the question in this text. Will Bethlehem so rejoice in God that this mathematics works here the way it did in Philippi? And I pray that you would cause our candles to shine bright with your joy and that we will be unhindered in letting it shine.